1: created a communication tool and I I mean I just personally as a mother I would never have created a tool that would take all eye contact away which is pretty much what most of these tools are doing is keeping everyone's eyes down.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Tiffany Schlang about how cell phones have taken over our lives.
1: Do we want to live in a world where we're just, no one is
0: ever present? I don't think so.
2: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor.
0: Sometimes the best thing about being on the road for business travel is not being on the road at all. Sometimes hiding away and unwinding in your hotel room is what you need to really get away. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Guest Room provides me with everything I need and nothing I don't. It has all the purposeful design details that matter most. There are plentiful outlets and convenient locations, a spacious bench for luggage storage, and an open closet for easy access. The AC Guest Rooms are beautiful, they're uncluttered, and they're truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac hotels.com to learn more. You see them everywhere, walking down the street, in bars and restaurants, even in your own home, at the table, on sofas, and in beds. Maybe you are one too, a phone zombie. It isn't pretty. We have been taken over by our phones and the other screens in our life. Tiffany Schlein says there's an ancient remedy for this affliction. One day a week for the past ten years, she and her family have simply unplugged. She calls it their technology Shabbat, and she makes the case for it in her new book Twenty Four Six: The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. Tiffany Schlein is no Luddite, though. She's the founder of the Webby Awards, a filmmaker, and the co-founder of the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Tiffany Schlain, welcome back to Design Matters. It's so
1: nice to be back.
0: Tiffany, I think I discovered something about you that I didn't know in the time since any of our previous Design Matters interviews. Is it true that in 1994, when you were in your early 20s, you were featured in 17 magazine <laughs> in a roundup of young women's success stories. Oh my gosh,
1: how did you find that? Is that on the interweb? I'm not telling. <laughs> I have not thought about that in a really, oh gosh, what did I say? <laughs> I wait, wait, wait. I, I talked about making movies. Yes. <laughs> and living in a big lot where we'd all make movies together. Yeah, in this you uto- forecasted
0: your whole life. <laughs> my whole
1: life. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for taking me right back.
0: Oh, my goodness. My pleasure. I guess it would be safe to say you were always an overachiever. <laughs> I had some pretty clear goals.
1: <laughs> no, I just think I... That's really interesting to think about, because I do think, I mean, in life, you have to think big in order to just hope you're going to get there. And... um Making work for the world that makes a change, I think, was always part of that.
0: I think it's something that's been embedded in you and your family since yes. the beginning of time. <laughs> um, we're here primarily today to talk about your brand new book. Congratulations. Thank There's There's been a lot of coverage, a new New York Times piece out yet today. Yeah. It's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So your book is called 24-6, The Power of Unplugging, One Day a Week and it examines the practice of what you and your family do one day every week mm-hmm. you shut off all of your devices and go completely analog but as i mentioned in in my intro some people might be surprised that you wrote this book after founding the webbies and working as a filmmaker and exploring all sorts of future forward topics In other words, you really come from a place of digital immersion. Um, You even state this in your book. Before living 24-6, you were on screens Mm 24-7. So really, 24-7. Yeah. I mean, I think like most people,
1: uh, we can remember the moment when the iPhone came out and that really changed things where suddenly um, your computer could go with you wherever you wanted. And it did. And it went in the bedroom, in the bathroom, in the boardroom and wherever you were walking and on nature walks. And that really shifted um, just the world at your fingertips all the time but i didn't like the way i was feeling i was feeling very distracted and again this was actually like 11 years ago i was feeling very distracted like i wasn't present and yet of course love technology and the potential of it all because in my work that's what my my husband kens a professor of robotics and ai i mean we both that's one of our favorite topics is what is the potential what can it extend and what can it not extend what does it amplify and what does it amputate And I was really starting to feel like it was encroaching on my humanness. Um, And then I had this um, very dramatic period of time where my father was diagnosed with brain cancer. And I found out I was pregnant in the same week. And it was really like life was grabbing me by the shoulders and making me think about how I was living. And um, whenever I'd go visit my dad, I'd turn off my phone, of course, because he towards the end really only had like one good hour a day. I had this new life growing inside of me, and then in a period of days, he did die, and and our daughter Bluma was born. And I just, it was like, okay, I I have been given this really a gift of a very profound colliding of events. And Ken and I are part of this organization um, called Reboot that was doing a National Day of Unplugging. And we had done versions of Shabbat. I should say I'm Jewish, but I'm not a religious Jew. And Ken and I, maybe we did a Shabbat dinner, which most cultural Jews will say, yes, maybe we light the candles, but never had done a full day. In fact, the only people I knew that did a full day of Shabbat, which I know you know, are Orthodox Jews. And that always felt kind of interesting to me, but very distant. I didn't know anyone in my immediate life that took a full day. So we did a full day without screens, and um, it felt so good. I felt like... I got my soul back. I know that sounds probably dramatic to say, but I felt liberated. I felt clean. I felt present. I felt happy. I felt protected from the world, which is kind of coming at us all the time. And we've never stopped doing it. So it's now been um, 10 years. And the longer we've done it, the crazier the world has become with the screens. I mean, this was like 10 years ago when I was like, ah, oh, this is too much for me. and But now you can't go anywhere without seeing everyone's staring down. And it was gauche to have it at the table or to pull it out when you're talking.
0: It's commonplace now. When did that happen? Because I remember not so long ago when it was not acceptable to pull your phone out at the table. Right. And now not only is it okay, but the moment you do that, Everyone. everybody else does too. It's like a yawn.
1: Right. Like one person does it and suddenly, okay, it's, like, it's fair game. It makes me so sad because I... I was talking to this uh, this teenage girl, came in here one of my book talks, and she said this great thing where she was like, I go to a camp where there's no technology, and I loved it, you know, and I was like, well, tell me more, and she goes, well, you know that moment where there's like a group of people and you're all talking, and then there's that that moment that always comes to when you're in a group where no one says anything, and it's kind of awkward, and she said, now normally, we'd all pull out our phones, but she found at camp you had to kind of push through that uncomfortableness and something funny would happen or something you would connect deeper or like that. It's all those moments in between that are so vital to relationships and and really the fabric of our society. I mean, I really think we're in such a divisive place in our society. And how much is that because all those little in-between moments are gone now because we're all just in our screens and we're not really paying attention to anyone. We're in our own little worlds. And we feel important and validated and stressed and all these things that the phone brings. We're doing. We're active. We're productive. But but you're like missing out with what's right right in front of you, the life that's happening right in front of you, the people, the
0: kind of little moments. You write in 24-6 how you clearly remember the night that you and your husband, Ken Goldberg, took the iPhone plunge in 2007 and you tried to convey to Ken why you worried that smartphones might be a detriment to your relationship. What oh were you worried about at I know, that it's moment? Weird. Because I mean, we had no way of knowing that I texting would be what it is.
1: And... You know, Ken was very late in getting a cell phone. He's like, I love my thinking time in the car. Which now, I mean, I get so much, and of course we don't have that. But yeah, I was nervous and I <laughs> I'm gonna admit this, he might kill me. I actually, we, we, the two white cube boxes, I actually brought to a couple's therapy appointment. (laughs) And and I said, I think these things are going to be not good. And we had the funniest session. He laughed so hard. I'm like, you think I'm kidding? I don't know, it was a Pandora's box is right in front of me, and, and I, I was right because how many times in a relationship it's like, okay, get off the screen, turn off the screen, put the screen away. I mean, every relationship with friends, with partners, with lovers, with your kids, with everyone, you know, put the screen away. Like, I'm here and I am telling you, I don't have digital perfection down right now because the other six days I do all these interventions. I think of them as I wear a watch instead of looking at my phone. I carry a blank notebook instead of pulling out my phone. I have all these things I go into in the book. But but really the only day I feel purely myself, is, is Friday night to Saturday night because I don't want to touch it. I don't want to look at it. I mean, if we get really lost and Ken needs to pull out the GPS, he's the Shabbos guy. He'll carry it. But I don't even want to look at it. To me, it represents the whole world coming at me. And that is the way I feel now, as I feel... We weren't built to be 24-7 as a people. That's why I love that this... I'm bringing back this very old tradition of um, Shabbat, which, if you're a religious Jew excuse me, you're not doing anything from Friday night to Saturday, no, no electricity, no driving, you're studying Torah. In our interpretation, it is no screens. We always, you know, have lots of people over for dinner. Friday night night's very joyful and communal and a lot of conversation about the week and the world. And that is wonderful and very social. And then I sleep the best on Friday night and Saturday is very, it's much more quiet. You know, we have a 16 year old now, a 10 year old and Ken and I and it is everyone's favorite day of the week, I should say. It's surprising for most people that a teen would love it, but she's very articulate on why. But I'll ask you about that yeah, a little but, bit. Yeah, but it's uh, it's a much more, you know, we, we cook a lot, we garden, we go out biking, we do watercoloring, we read, we nap, but it's much more of a quiet reflection. I do a lot of journaling, um, and I think we've left no space for any inner thinking without it being interrupted or... Everything influencing it all of the time, and I and it, there's great value in having some silence. Did you
0: ever experience withdrawal through this process? I remember a time, and I'll, I'll actually never forget the feeling. It was in 2008, so one year after okay. the the iPhone came out, and my dad had triple bypass surgery, mm. and that summer. I rented a little house near his up in the Catskills. Mm. That's where he was living. And in that part of the Catskills, there had yet to be Internet service. Mm. That's how far we've come just in 11 years. There was no Internet service in that part of the Catskills. And I would go up. The first weekend I went up, I literally went through withdrawal. I went through the fear and the sort of shaking And Tiffany. I was so desperate Hmm. for internet. Did you drive somewhere? No. I actually connected to the internet through a phone. (laughs) Oh my God. Because you could still do that. Oh, I then. remember that it was like dial up. Oh, uh, yeah. oh
2: my my old
0: AOL account still was. Wow, still I could still get on. I was still able to use it, and that's how I got online. But I remember the feeling that that terror of not being connected, that that untethering. Okay, I hear that, and I think when it happens when you're not
1: expecting it, I can see that, but. I think it's a positioning because when you feel like, oh, I'm going to turn off my phones, I'm being deprived of the connection of the world. But the way I look at it and my family looks at it and the way I talk about it in the book is it's what you get back. It's like a radical act of protection in this world where you do all the things that you wish you had more time to do because we all know we read in a different way now. I mean you're reading – we're reading more than ever but we're skimming. So when I read on my text about like I put articles aside all week that I'm like, oh, I want to read and think that about that deeply or I want to journal. I want to think deeply about that or I want to just do nothing. We're in such a state of optimizing and monetizing every frigging second that there's never a state of just being. And that needs to be valued, too, as a society, because, of course, I, I mean, Ken and I always say we feel more productive after our texture bot than any other day of the week. We are on fire on Sunday. And creatively, I mean, you're a creative person. I'm doing everything to make my mind feel more juicy and supple and creative. And and I m- made a whole film about, you know, Case for Dreaming which is all about the neuroscience of daydreaming and how creativity, it needs to put your mind in this state of flow and where you're not focused on something in order to have links and creative thoughts. And I find I have the most creative thoughts on Saturday. I feel the most productive on Sunday. So... I think it's the way I frame it in my mind. It's like, oh my gosh, I get this kind of sense of being back. And then I'm super psyched. Okay, this is the other dual effect is I I rush towards Friday night unplugging for the Shabbat meal and just like I laugh so much more and just being present in a way I'm not the rest of the week. But then Saturday night, you re-appreciate this incredible thing called the internet all over again. So it's like a dual effect every week, because it is pretty miraculous. Mm. And we take it for granted all the time. And then I do appreciate it on Saturday night again. Like, oh, I get to text. I get to, because, you know, when we have a question on Saturday as a family, we'll be like, I wonder what the, huh? And then we just sit there and we have to ponder. have to ponder, <laughs> I have to ponder That's this. It's a road trip to the library. <laughs> oh, we do. We pull out books. We do go to the library a lot. I mean, I'm a fan.
0: You detail how the Puritan Sabbath was extremely strict and detail how in 1789, according to legend, President George Washington was stopped by an official for riding his horse on the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. a violation then of New York state laws. Washington got off with a warning when he explained he was actually riding to church. (laughs) Tell us about some of the other historical roots of Shabbat. I find it so interesting that despite specific belief differences. So many different tribes organized around belief have so many of the same rituals. Yeah, this
1: idea of a day of rest is um, so fascinating because before a day of rest, time just went on and on and on and on and on. There was no rest. And then when a day of rest happened, the Sabbath or Shabbat, it was for everyone. It was for everyone in the household. It was for all the animals. It was like the first act of equality. And it completely changed um, society. And it was a radical innovation then. I'm trying to bring it back to make it, make it the technology of today. Let's bring the technology of rest back into our lives. You know, the book has a lot of history. I go into a lot of neuroscience. But I also just have a lot of um, proposals for the tech industry, too, because this world we created, I don't want people to feel like this is inevitable. Oh, we live in a 24-7 hustle, always on, always available. And I think we need to rethink that because all you have to do is extrapolate out how that's going to be. On book tour, everywhere I've gone, every different age group, they're all coming at the issue from different, you know, times they've been online or whatever. But everyone on some level says it doesn't feel good.
0: Right. Right. So I think I, I talked about this last week actually a friend of mine recently said no one ever comes away from 30 minutes on Instagram feeling good. That's right.
1: I mean I wish there was a little pop-up design thing that would pop up It's like what need are you trying to fill right now? <laughs> what, that need? Would be
0: good. what need? What
1: need? It's like an ad post? blocker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an emotional like therapy. A what? need checker. Yeah, like yeah. what what's going on? Is there some other way you could fill this need? Is there something you could replace the scrolling with a bit of joy? Like, you could, you maybe, okay, wait, this is another part of the design. It would ask you, like, 15 things you wish you did more of. Mm. And then as you pulled out your phone, which we do, like, 80 times a day, just as you flicked your wrist, it would pop up and suggest the other things that bring you
0: joy, that fill you instead of drain you. One thing that you were just talking about in terms of big-picture thinking and your husband wanting that time to be able to think in the car, can we only do big-picture thinking when we're not, Busy?
1: Well, I mean, I love collaboration. I love collaborative thinking, but I do value thinking on one, one's own. I was just uh, rereading about Einstein's thought experiments and that term thought experiment. That's how he came up with the theory of relativity. He would walk along the river and he had a very boring job at a patent office and he called them thought experiments. where It wouldn't look like he was doing anything, but he was figuring out theorems and, you know, postulating about the universe in his mind. Now, that's Einstein, but <laughs> for the rest of us... I'm thinking about us, my
0: Christmas list, but okay.
1: But just giving your space to think, I think, is really important. And, you know, I remember Steve Jobs. I'm a big, and I know you are too, but I blank journals are, to me, really important in my life. And they went away for a long time when the phone became your calendar and you're this and your note taker. And, in fact, I don't think people should take notes on their phone. Like, it Why? looks like... Why not? Oh, okay. I have... <laughs> A lot of it is how you are affecting other people. So when you pull out your phone, I think you're tuning out. You might be taking notes, but it's so much better to take them on a notepad, actually, because you'll retain what you've taken more. But, you know, I I used to be a smoker, and I write about that in the book, and I remember the feeling of addiction. And there's all these studies that even seeing somebody else's phone turned off on a table when you're eating, you'll be less focused. So I've been thinking it's really like secondhand smoke. It's like the secondhand smoke of attention. So if you and I have a meal together and our and a phone was out, I would just think at any moment that could buzz for Debbie and she's gone.
0: Yeah, it really really bothers me, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate please, for a moment please. only because it's something that I worry about and I think about because I'm I think the same way that you do about this. So for example, one thing that I don't allow in any of my classrooms are technology. When you're in the classroom, you're listening, and if you want to take notes, you have to do them by hand. I've been criticized about that. I've been criticized by people that think that I am keeping young people from being able to communicate in a way that their digitally native way likes. I think what you're doing is good because the
1: 99% of the rest of their day, they're on that screen. So if you create a sacred space is what you're doing, a sacred learning space. And Ken does this too at UC Berkeley. He says, anyone that wants to take notes on their laptop, you're going to sit over here. And he has this like little corner space. (laughs) And everyone else, you're going to be focused and listening because I spent a lot of time preparing for this class. We have an hour together and I'm teaching you what I know. If when I walk over, I see anyone on that screen on Facebook or uh, Instagram or something else, your phone, your laptop's gonna be taken away. Now, I mean, if you think about it, when you let a student um, have a device in the class, it's like you really have um, a TV, you have um, a Tele- network to an every, actual telephone a where telephone you could be to all their friends, they're right? They're texting. You're basically giving them access to everything instead of paying attention. Like, what value is that? And I think, um, you know, around our dinner table now, we've gotten really strict about, you know, no screens at the table. We're going to have a meal together. And, we, and we're not one of those families that has dinner together every night. You know, Ken and I both work. We tag team during the week. And then there are a couple nights during the week where we're all together. But it's like no screens at the table and we're going to talk. I, I want people to think twice about just having it on the table, pulling it out, having it in their hand as a constant thing all the time. And staring down all the time. And
0: what is so, that? So what is it that we're actually addicted to? So, for example, I do have this rule in my classes. No phones. Put your phone completely on silent or turn it off. I don't even want to hear the buzz of a vibration.
1: I'm with you. It's like it was like a, a, a silent Tiffany, vibration you, orchestra in my film studio once. And I was like, that's it.
0: it do you know how hard this is for them to do? Yeah. You'd think we were asking them to go without water for a week two-and-a-half-hour class with a break, Mm -hmm. they cannot do it. I can't even begin Mm -hmm. to tell you. Anybody that goes to the bathroom more than two times during class either has food poisoning or they are looking at their phones. So um, this high school student, I was
1: at back-to-school night in public high school in the Bay Area where I live, and this teacher said, you'll notice the pouches, the cell phone pouches at the entrance of the classroom, And he said, when cell phones first came out, smartphones, we thought that um, kids could self-regulate when they would use them. And then we realized, like, that was having a big pile of crack cocaine in the center of the classroom. And I just sat there and I was like, did he just say that? Did he just use the analogy of crack cocaine, a pile of crack cocaine to the smartphone? And, you know, um, France just banned all smartphones from every school until the age of 15, the entire country of France. A law was just introduced in California for this. I mean, this is real. We are giving these malleable developing brains, which I've made a lot of films about, you know, the neuroscience of developing brains, a supercomputer to addict them to want to do something again and again and again. And we, you know, got our daughter a flip phone. We were the one of the only um, families that didn't get our daughter a, a smartphone. And I'm so glad we did that decision. Now, fortunately, there's an organization called Wait Until Eighth, as in wait until eighth grade to get them a smartphone, and I think all the research is coming out, like the fact that teen suicide attempts have doubled since the smartphone has come out, you know, I'm, I'm. I know your students are more. They're older, but you know, just imagine. You know,
0: kids that are nine are getting these phones and they're on social media. And oh, I see it. I see how young people. The I see it with with little babies when you yeah. show them an iPad with their cartoons on them. How they just yes. want them over and over. So, what is it about these devices it, I mean, that's it's so a, addictive? It is
1: very similar to the you know, it's the dopamine reward center and the real reason, which I think gets to the root of your question is that the business model, so when the web was first created, when I was first starting the Webby Awards, it was a democratized, open, you know, it was it was a, like a nonprofit. There was no financial goals with it. And it was publicly funded, and it was so exciting in the 90s about the potential of the web to connect ideas and people all over the world. Then the, the businesses, you know, the Facebook, Google, Twitter, all the, the main technology companies, and the ad model was that We're going to keep all these services for free, which of course was the most expensive Faustian bargain we ever made, because you're selling your data. And thousands of engineers and behavioral scientists, their job is to figure you out, your likes and your dislikes and to try to keep you glued on that screen all the time. And now as we've seen with the election and we're living in the results of of this candidate of this presidency for the last 3 years of manipulating political beliefs, making people want to believe a certain way. So Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the internet just came out with this great op-ed about ways to fix the internet and he's got some incredible proposals. I'd recommend your listeners check it out. It's called the I think it's the Web Contract, the Future Web Contract. But I think we need to have a serious conversation about regulation. Um, We need more diversity in creating the tools. A lot of a very myopic group of white men created a communication tool. And I, I mean, I just personally, as a mother, I would never have created a tool that would take all eye contact away, which is pretty much what most of these tools are doing is keeping everyone's eyes down. So why is eye contact important? Uh, eye contact is important for everything. It's what makes us human. It's for empathy. It's for understanding how someone's feeling. Because you know what they say is that half of what the information you get from people is what they say. And the other half is their gesticulation and their body language. So and just to connect, to authentically connect with another and to move through that uncomfortable moment. and And that usually actually makes you closer. So if you constantly have this device to interrupt all of that that's when I think people start to feel on, like, some deep core level disconnected, even though we're more connected than ever.
0: It shook me when I read in your book that even dogs are negatively affected by the lack of human eye contact yeah, with their owners. You know, I know, and you and I I love dogs and cats, and right now I,
1: I have a cat, and you know, and staring into your cat's eyes or your dog's <laughs> eyes is, like, one of life's great pleasures. There's so much going back there, and and we all need eye contact. We all we all need authentic connection because connecting broadly is meaningless unless you also connect deeply and i think right now we're in such a state of connecting to everything and everyone all the time and the online world it puts you in a perpetual state of want you want more clicks you want more validation you want more stressful news you want to see more things you want to buy you want to do you want to bu- 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 you're just in a constant state of want and when you turn it off for a full day not just for like a moment here or there, but like a real full day, you get to appreciate what you have that's right in front of you. And it, it takes away that feeling of wanting, that insatiable, because you never can feel sated. That's the other part of it is that that's what it's designed to do to kind of drip along likes and to, all the subliminal messaging. And you're never
0: kind of satisfied you're in this, this online world of want. There are two more questions that I want to ask you about sort of the state that we're currently living in. And then I want to ask you about how can you help people lean into or ease into the the notion of unplugging. But I I read in your book that it takes 23 minutes to recover from disruptions. Mm -hmm. So if you get a text and you look at it while you're doing something else, Mm -hmm. it actually takes you 23 minutes to recover Mm -hmm. and go back into the mode you were in. Yeah, into flow. I mean, when I
1: learned that research, that's when I made a rule at my film studio. I'm like, okay, all the smartphones are in the bags because my team mostly works remotely, and then two days a week we're all in the film studio together. And for those two days, I just wanted us to be in flow, either collaborating or working on our own, whatever we're doing. And, I mean, basically the beat is your prefrontal cortex, which it says... Is what I'm about to do a reflection of who I am and what I want to be? That's that's what the prefrontal cortex does. And right now we're all amygdala. We're like, I want to find out. I want to text that person. I want to this and, and of course, President Trump is like, he's all amygdala in the worst distorted way because you give him a Twitter account and he, there's no filter. There's no prefrontal cortex. There's no thought process before he acts. And we've created these tools that allow us to just do things so easily and quickly, but they're, it's good to have a a filter, I have a pause and a beat to think, wait, why am i doing that? What need am i trying to fill? What would make me feel better than what i'm doing right now? And to get a full day of this texture bot each week, i think it really realigns your perspective. And in terms of your question about people leaning into it, um in the book 24/6, i you know, it's both memoir and big picture, but there's a lot of practical advice on how to bring this into your life. So how to convince your your partner or your friends to join or your kids or your boss. And then actually on my site 246life.com I have a lot of kind of weekly
0: challenges to lead up to it. Um, so so if I were to come to this completely unaware of your book and this practice, how would you how would you describe what you do to someone and how they could ease into doing it themselves? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I would, I would ask them, you know, when, when does it feel good and when does it not feel good? Do you feel like you're on your screens too much? I haven't met one person that hasn't said yes to that. And then I would say write a list of what you wish you had more time to do because everybody's got that list. And it's a fun list. It's so yummy. It's like just what do I, I want to learn the ukulele? I want to watercolor. I want to read. I want to nap. Whatever it is. So make, a, make your list. And then I'm more of a, like, jump into something. But if you wanted to take baby steps, something really profound that I've done is um, I don't look at my phone first thing in the morning, which I was waking up and turning over and turning on that phone and going to the New York Times app. And this was right around the time of um, the presidential election. And I was getting so stressed out. So my day was starting with stress and cortisol and all of that. And now I wake up and I, I journal. Now, that gives me joy. That might not be for everyone, but it really frames my day. But I guess I would say to anyone, could you replace looking at your phone first thing in the morning with something else that gives you joy? And just see how that feels to just frame your day in a different way. And then I really walk people through all the things you need to prepare. It's not
0: much um, for doing a Tech Shabbat. How how, would people, how do people prepare? You, you, you've you said that you don't recommend a detox. I don't that like do that once. word. I don't like that word.
1: I just – it just acts like you can live without it. And the truth is we can't live without technology. We are living in a technological era. That's the world we live in. So detox just I think sets you up for not realistic expectations. That's why I love Tech Shabbat is it's like once a week you're going to just live in a different way. You're going to live analog. It's super fun. And that's a mindset, too. It's not that something's being taken away from you. It's what you get back. In the book, I talk about little things to, like, it's good to have a clock in your home. (laughs) A landline. A landline. Okay. Thank you for bringing up the land. So landlines. I've been writing telling you need to have a landline in your house. So that's if you really need to call someone to text about it. Somebody needs to call you. And it's also really great in real emergencies like we just had in Northern California and Southern California. We had wildfires and the cell phone towers went down. And that was the way you could communicate with, if you had a landline, which most people didn't. And there's lots of kind of analog, uh, a big black Sharpie with a pad of paper. <laughs> That's all the things that I, I write down that I think, oh, I need to call that person, do that. It, for the first hour on my tech show about, I'm still like, things tumble from my head. And then I feel set free. I'm like, ah, oh, a day where I'm not responding to the whole world. And, um, and then my 16 my year old daughter, I mean, she's the way she says it, she says, I love not having to do homework. She says, I just don't do homework. <laughs> and I don't have to be on social media. I don't have, because we think that they can't live without it, but it's a lot of pressure to just be on all the time. So it hasn't been harder as they've
0: gotten older, your daughters, to adhere to the sort of rules?
1: No, no. but you know, I do talk about, I have a whole chapter in the book, making rules and breaking rules, because, you know, we're human. I mean, sometimes. Like there's a handful of times where Ken and I have to travel, and now Odessa, our older daughter's now traveling for Model UN or Junior States, and if you travel, it's very hard to do texture. But so I sometimes I do a modified version where I will use my phone to get to the plane, but I'll I'll only read. And Ken, he's more comfortable being the one to carry it in case we get lost or an emergency or something. I don't want to touch it at all, like I said. But I think everyone's gonna find their own rules, but I do think it's good to be clear. Like, I'm going to go out for a day, and you just let your family and friends know, reach me on my landline, um, or You let your boss know, I just really need to refresh. I'm going to not be available just for one day.
0: And then I'll be so recharged and ready the next day. Who's going to say no to that? In addition to the watch and the landline <laughs> and a pad with the Sharpie, what are some of the other essential tools of the trade? Can you give us some of the tips that you share in the book, your veritable shopping list?
1: Um, well, I really recommend people. This is The other six days, too, is carry around a notepad. Steve Jobs used to call the personal computer the bicycle for the mind. That was his metaphor back in the day with the Macintosh. It's no longer the bicycle of the mind because there's a lot of people trying to get at you all the time when you're biking around. I think the true bicycle of mind is a blank notepad. So I would just say, everyone, get a blank notepad. If it makes you feel more comfortable, make it like the size of your phone. Make it small. But carry it around. Pull it out in the morning. Pull it out when you're waiting in a restaurant. See how it—I mean, I actually have a a, print, a paper day plan or two. I also use Google Calendar, but I like to write out my week. It helps me think through the week. I do, too. I get made fun of it mercilessly. No, it's, like, therapeutic. Like, I, I get to see the week all on a page. It's like there's something relaxing to me about it. But different people are going to find different things. But, you know, and getting a watch, that's, this has been huge. Do you wear a watch? There you go.
0: I just pointed my watch to Tiffany. Yeah,
1: a watch my is beloved really, watch. Well, first of all, so many times when you need to know the time, you pull out your phone, and then you're down the rabbit hole. And if you have a watch, you've got a watch. And you look at the time, and boom, you're still in the moment. And I think, like, the pendulum has swung so far, and I hope with the book and my talks and whatever, I'm just kind of pushing the pendulum back with a lot of other people that are feeling this way and a lot of other strategies, and mine is one, but... It's worked, and it's been 10 years, and it's been so profound and transformative for me, my husband, and my girls that it felt like I have to share this simple, free practice that's 3,000 years old and it's got a lot of wisdom in it, baked into it, that a lot of people that practice Shabbat could tell you also.
0: Toward the end of your book, you take a macro look at the big picture, and you Mm -hmm. write this. Across the board, there's a lack of balance. The speed at which the technology is taking over is so much greater than the speed at which we're able to grasp its impact. And the people in the room making the decisions are rarely connected to the people in homes, feeling the effects. How Mm -hmm. do we fix that? For those systems to flourish in the years ahead, it's vital that we think back to the original version of the web, and do a better job of integrating significantly more diverse perspectives into the creation of these products and devices, and that we think through and legislate the outcomes more carefully. So, Tiffany, my question is, what do you think our future is if we don't put the brakes on our digital addictions? I mean,
1: there's a couple futures, dystopian futures I foresee. I mean... When you walk around New York and everyone's head is down... That already is dystopian. I to think me. that's
0: going to impact
1: our evolution, is in in our ergonomics. Oh, for sure. They even said there's like a bone growing out of our neck. First of all, it's very unflattering. Also, to have your chin down, you have a double chin. It's like, well, that's, that wait, should be enough. <laughs> when you when you when you forget your unself mode and you're your like, front, ah! and yeah,
0: that's that's what we see.
1: But do you remember the movie Wally where everyone <laughs> was just like sure. in the recliner drinking a sugar drink and staring at a screen? That's another vision. But listen, the screens are going to go away soon. An even scarier future is, OK, let's – I used to talk about this in the early Webby War days, but I do think this will eventually happen because Google Glass didn't really work because it would creep people out. But that will come back. And then just imagine if people had contact lenses and I'm talking to you and, and your students, you know, let's say they could just be clicking through streams with their blinking and you wouldn't even know. You know, because the big thing is the earbuds. And how many times have you been walking down the street and I'll be like, oh, hello. You know, I don't know if this happens in New York, but I'm in California. Hello, and they don't respond. In that. And then I see the earbuds like peeking out. I'm like, oh, they totally didn't hear Were me. Or people talking to themselves. We used to, to think, think that, that that was
0: somebody that maybe was crazy. not
1: 100%. So as those get smaller and more microscopic, it's going to be harder to tell when people are yeah, with Black you. mirror, baby. Yeah, but even more important... We need to have this day where we remember what it's like to think and be by ourselves and to be with people in the room, appreciate the things right in front of us, and give us the space to think about what is the world we want to create. I mean, right now, when I started the Webby's, there was just like a handful of millions of people online. Now there's over half the planet is online. And how do we have an important conversation like this about the design of the internet, is this healthy for us? Should we we be rethinking incentives and rewards of the business model? Should we be rethinking regulation? Yes. And because when the second half of the planet comes on, what are the conversations we should be having? Because on the one hand, that's so exciting to me because to think about some of our greatest challenges with all this brain power coming at it from all the different perspectives, I mean, that's when... Insights are going to happen we can't even imagine.
0: But do we want to live in a world where we're just no one is ever present? I don't think so. You write that change can begin with some basic concrete steps. Unplugging once a week is a foundational one, but it doesn't end there. What kind of regulation are you proposing? What kinds of well, right. changes should yeah. be made from a governmental point of view?
1: I mean, there's a couple of things that need to happen. We need to have more translators on what's happening actually elected into office, so people that are more technologically savvy to understand what the the consequences of the technology are. But we also need a, not just government, but like as a mother, I'm like, why did you guys create this tool that's like addicting and sucking all these kids' brains up, you know? And so I think um, having more diverse boards, people of color, women, people being affected by the technologies to... Be able to give feedback to the tech companies and maybe make them take a left turn instead of a right when we're like, you know, this is really not good for our kids. I mean, there's been plenty of articles about how the tech titans of Silicon Valley
0: don't let their kids on screens. I learned in 24-6 that when Netflix CEO Reed Hastings was asked who the company's biggest competition was, he responded with this answer. Not Amazon or HBO. We're competing with sleep.
1: Right. And sleep is important. (laughs) We are all, I mean, and again, I I do not like the word binge. You know, maybe staying up till two and three in the morning watching 12 episodes of something is maybe not, you know, and as a filmmaker, I'm like, enjoy that piece of work and then take a break and come back into it. I guess, you know, the fact, and I I see this with my daughters just watching episode after episode. I'm like, okay. Screens off, we're going outside, you yeah. know.
0: Yeah, my brother uh, actually has a term for, he calls it screen face. That's when somebody, so funny. Yeah, that when is. they get that sort of blank look because they're so deeply immersed screen in. Screen face. Teen oh my Titans. Gosh. I love that. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then if you tell them to turn off, they get, I mean, just see anyone's mood yeah. when they're told to get off of a device. Everyone gets aggro. And that's, again, another thing with the tech chatbot is no one's trying to get anyone off. It's like you're doing it with someone. Right. And you're doing it with your family, your partner, with your friends, and it's fun. You're like, okay, we're going to play a board game. We're going to draw. We're going to
0: go out in nature. We're just not going to do anything that involves screens. Before we sign off, I'm wondering if you could read a short passage from the book for us, one that I've chosen. But I'd love it if you could let my listeners know the backstory around this specific excerpt. So I mentioned at the top that my my
1: father, Leonard Stein, I was really close with him, and and he— he was all about presence. I mean, actually, at his funeral, that was the number one thing that people said to me. Different people that I knew or people I didn't know, he said, your father always made me feel like the most important person in the room. And he he conveyed such a presence. It was amazing. And when he was dying, he—I I mentioned there was, there was times when he only had one good hour of sleep. And, and on his last days, he actually lost his ability to speak and— Right before he lost his ability to speak, he said, "I have something really important to tell all of you and he gathered my siblings and his best friends around and his his wife, and we all were around the bed and it was like it was like he was about to tell us the meaning of life or the universe, or something really simple and we all leaned into him and and then he lost his ability to speak and then for the next eight hours or so, we just we just connected with him with our eyes which was super powerful and again eye contact and empathy and connection it was just so intense and beautiful and and then he died and um so this is the end of the book um I hold myself together for it okay if I have the privilege of living long enough to see my hair turn gray And if I experience the joy of having grandchildren that I can hold in my sun-spotted hands. And if on my final day as my body's shutting down, I lose my ability to speak with only my eye contact left. I would hope Ken, Odessa, Bluma, my brother Jordan, sister Kimberly, best friends and grandchildren are all gathered around me, leaning into me close enough to hear what my eyes are saying. Here's what they try to convey more presence, more appreciating, more compassion, more laughing, more dancing, more making, more kneading dough, more mistakes, more I'm sorry, more I forgive you, more eye contact, more hugs, more daydreaming, more silence more eating together at the table, more reading, more journaling, more taking a beat, more thinking in slow motion, more rituals, more nature, more getting lost, more rest and digest, more tend and befriend, more empathy, more joy, more authentic connecting, more looking up more
0: love. Tiffany Schlein. thank you for always illuminating what is happening in the world with such grace, intellect, and optimism. Thank you for having me, though. Tiffany Schlein's latest book is 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. To find out more about Tiffany Schlein, go to tiffanyschlane.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melvin, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, Transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.